All right, everybody. It is Thursday, February 25th, 2021, and this is the Fight Business Podcast. I'm your host, Patrick Oje, and today we have a ton of stuff to cover. Uh, I am feeling a little bit under the weather, and as you can see by this lovely giant band-aid here, I did accidentally cut myself right before we were recording, so it's not that bad. These are just the only band-aids I had in the house, so can't wait for producer Jake to take a screenshot of this. I'm sure nobody will make fun of me for it at all, but... In terms of what we're covering on the podcast today, uh, we are going to take a look at the UFC's historic deal with Migu Mobile for distribution of UFC content in China. We're going to talk about UFC discretionary bonuses and dive into that a little bit in terms of what we learned from the New York Post article, as well as what we know about previous UFC finances and what it means for fighters, things of that nature, really break that down. We're going to talk about one championship, possibly doing a SPAC, a special purpose acquisition company. That's a very big deal. If they go through with that, I'll break down exactly what that type of company is and what it would be used for, how it affects the promotion. We'll also talk about one championship dealing with the unrest in Myanmar. They could be affected, especially given all the political things going around there and some of their stars coming out in support of a free Myanmar. So we're going to really break that down and see how much of a risk is that for the promotion, what should they do to mitigate it and kind of make sure that their audience is intact there and everything of that nature. We also have a couple things in terms of Invicta leaving UFC fight pass and, and little tidbits like that. But with that in mind, we've got time steps in the bottom. I'm going to be diving through a lot of this pretty quickly again, still in depth coverage, but you know, a little bit shorter today just with everything going on. So let's go ahead and get right into it. All right, so the first topic I want to talk about today is the UFC's historic deal with Migu Mobile for broadcast distribution of UFC content in China. So if you haven't heard the news yet, we don't know the exact financial details, but Migu Mobile will be the official broadcast partner for the UFC in China. They will be doing 12 pay-per-views, 30 fight nights, uh, Dana White Contender Series Asia. This is a very, very big deal. Now, if you've watched this show before or you've read some of my previous articles about the UFC trying to carve out a bigger piece of the Chinese market, you'll know that they originally had dis media distribution rights deal for around $50 million or so. And there were talks once Li Zhang became the champion that they were going to go back and try and get double that. It's not known, again, exactly how much money they're getting with the Migu Mobile deal, but I would imagine it's probably at least... 100 million, which is double what they were talking, might even be more. Could be less, but I, I believe that especially with the UFC's growing popularity and MMA's growing popularity in China, they probably got at least $100 million for this deal, which is exactly what they wanted. And again, this is a culmination of the UFC's you know, efforts and, and continuous efforts to stake their claim to the Chinese market. We've known that China is an emerging market in all of industry for some time now, especially over the past decade. They've really ramped up um, what they're doing. And, you know, it, it's you talk about business. You talk about China is going to become, you know, take everybody's jobs, all this other stuff, which is not true. They're not going to take everybody's jobs. But again, China's industry has been at the forefront of all businesses. MMA is no different. And the UFC has seen this for a while. They built the Performance Institute. In, in Shanghai, right? That was one of their first, besides their core home UFC Performance Institute, that was one of the first places they went was the UFC Performance Institute in Shanghai. They pushed the shit out of Wei Li Zhang. 
if we're talking about Weili Zhang deserving a title shot when she got one against Andrade, now again, not taking away from her skills, she's incredible, especially with all the performances we've seen. I can't wait to see her fight Rose Namajunas, assuming that fight does happen. And and she totally deserves to be a champion. But to give you an idea, in case you forgot about her run-up to getting a crack at Andrade for the belt, she beat Danielle Taylor, Jessica Aguilar, and Tisha Torres. And then she got a title shot. The only ranked fighter there is Tisha Torres. And Danielle Taylor and Jessica Aguilar are no longer with the promotion, I believe. I know Danielle Taylor isn't. I Jessica Aguilar, they might have brought back. Let me check here real quick. I don't know if they did. Either way, we're not talking about anybody. No, no. Actually, Jessica Aguilar and Daniel Taylor lost fought each other at XFC 43. So, yeah, we're talking about two people that left the promotion and then Tisha Torres, who is a great fighter. And, again, that, that is a ranked opponent. But she got, you know, a huge push from the UFC to get a shot at the 115 pound women's belt and, and won. also don't forget that Andrade and, and Zhang, when Andrade was the champion, they fought in China, even though Zhang was the challenger that right there tells you all you need to know about the UFC trying to get a Chinese champion and trying to capture the Chinese market. And their efforts have really paid off here. This is a, a signal and, and a tangible thing they can point to to say that their efforts in building their fan base in China has worked. I mean, according to this uh, report from Sp Sports Pro Media, which, again, these are UFC touting these numbers, so you give or take some. But I, I, tr I would trust the these particular numbers. They said their fan base has grown to 173.8 million viewers, followers. That's, that's big. That's really big. Look back again four years ago from, from some of those numbers. Um, I don't have the specific ones here and my computer is being ridiculous. So I, I believe, you know, we were talking half that, if not a third or fourth, right. From two 2016 numbers of, of Chinese viewership in terms of the UFC, probably even less than that. I mean, this is a huge growth for the promotion in a market that they've been trying to capture forever. They've been trying to capture Russia and they've been trying to capture China and they really made headway in Russia with Habib and obviously Habib retiring has thrown everything off. That's part of the reason why Dana's like Habib come back is because if you look at the latest numbers from the free, free TV in Russia, they finally, you know, Habib really broke through there. It seems, and they were gaining traction in that market. But Weili Zhang again has done wonders, wonders for, for the UFC's penetration of the Chinese market. And, you know, they're, they keep signing, you know, new Chinese fighters. They're doing Dana White Contender Series Asia, which they'll get fighters from, you know, everyone in that area of the world. But I'm sure there will be a lot of Chinese fighters that will be on the show. And and I would expect you're going to see more and more Chinese fighters appear on, you know, fight night cards as last minute replacements or as they do more fight night cards. Once things get back to normal, they do more fight night cards abroad i would expect you're going to see more and more chinese fighters popping up because this is again a huge wide open customer base that has really evolved in the past 10 years now has the purchasing power to pay for things like pay-per-views of ufc pay-per-views and and fight nights and you know all this stuff it's a very big deal so 
this this is a win for the UFC in every sense of the word. This is is a signal that they've got a foothold here. One championship. I know there've been some discussion about will one carve out more of a niche because they've already you know been established in Asia and Singapore, and that's been their kind of home turf. No, I mean I think this really gives the UFC a massive leg up over any other promotion that's trying to break into the Chinese market because it's not an easy thing to do. And, and they've successfully done it. They've thrown a lot of money and time and effort behind it, and it's paid off. That's part of what this deal signifies here. Expect a lot of you know push on this platform. Expect a lot of new content and, and original content that's going to be created for Migu Mobile. And again, expect more UFC in China news, whether that's broadcast media rights deals being negotiated, new fighters from the region being signed, or new sponsorship deals with different Chinese companies. I, I expect a flood of this in the next two years. So keep an eye out for that. All right. So the next topic I want to go ahead and dive into is one championship is working with Goldman Sachs and Credit Suisse to potentially list in the U.S. as a SPAC, special purpose acquisition company. So what's a SPAC? In layman's terms, what a SPAC is, let me read you the official definition from Investopedia first, actually, then I'll break it down a little bit. But according to Investopedia, a special, a special purpose acquisition company is a company with no commercial operations that is formed strictly to raise initial public offering or an IPO for the purpose of acquiring an existing company. Now, in case you didn't, you know, just, oh, yeah, exactly. I know everything you're talking about. Let me break this down. Really what it is, is think of an IPO, right? When Facebook wanted to go public or any place wants to go public, they list on the New York Stock Exchange or the NASDAQ, the Dow Jones, through an IPO, an initial public offering. You have to fill out a bunch of documents. I've covered Endeavor, right, who owns the UFC. They were looking at filing an IPO. They pulled it last minute, but you have to do kind of a roadshow pitching to potential investors and different banks and things to help underwrite this, which is offering these shares to layman's folk like me and you. And then you have to do a ton of disclosures, a lot of filing. That's that's how we've learned a lot about the UFC's finances. That's how we know that a UFC IPO is probably in the works sometime soon, whether it be this year or next year, because of Endeavor's IPO and all the disclosures that they had to list about if the UFC did their own IPO. It's a lot of work, a lot of time. You have to do roadshows, forms, all this stuff. It's a whole thing. What a SPAC does is it bypasses a lot of the headache of the roadshows and, and disclosures that come with an IPO. And it's set up where any money is put specifically in a trust that can only be used in terms of looking at acquiring another company. Sometimes it can be used for working capital, but in general, 85% to 100% of the money, as MMA payout put it, um, is, is used to acquire a company. So what one championship would essentially be doing here is instead of going to the regular investors and having you know closed door meetings and all those things saying, yes, we're, look, we need funds in order to acquire this target company we're, look, we're going after. Right, they they probably have some company in mind. If they don't, they probably have at least a area in terms of a, a particular industry or you know niche. Uh, maybe narrowed down to three or four companies that they're looking at maybe acquiring, and they'll have certain restrictions and things on that nature in terms of you know what would be a good fit for whatever they're looking for. And 
basically one championship is not going that route of, yeah, we're going to have the typical investor meetings with VCs pitching ourselves, trying to get, you know, these private equity firms to pump money into us. And they're going to go to the public. So you and I, if this goes through, you and I would be able to buy shares in this SPAC, whatever it may be. And it would be purely used for one championship to acquire another company. So why would one championship do this? Well, really what it's all about is trying to find a company, my guess would be, that helps them get a foothold in the US market. They've talked about broadcast deals with TNT and looking for other broadcast deals in order to get a broader range audience and start getting some money pumping in. We've we've covered one championship's finances and how much money they lost in 2019, which is the last year that they've reported for, as well as their accumulated losses. They're they're burning through cash, spending a ton on marketing, and they've got revenue up, but that also includes barter transactions, which we know from an article recently we released in from Tech in Asia is essentially things like hotel rooms and flights and things of that nature with specific sponsorships. So while one has said that their revenue is growing, they're moving away more and more um, from barter transactions, they're growing organic revenue, all of that. The end game still needs to be some type of pay-per-view model or some type of broadcast deal that we see with the PFL, with ESPN or UFC, obviously with ESPN, now UFC with Migu Mobile. They need some type of deal like that that generates a ton of money for them. They have the TNT deal, but obviously that's not enough to offset so much of their expenses, right? They've really gone all out on marketing. They've really gone pretty hard at acquiring some very good fighters on their roster from, we don't know what the exact pay is, but we know that fighters tend to be happy, right? We we know that in terms of pay, fighters aren't complaining. And, you know, to reference that Tech in Asia article again, you had ex-employees who remained anonymous saying, like, the compensation package that those employees got was very good. And there was a lot of pressure on performance and all of that. But, I mean, that's a that's a big deal. That That is a real big deal because those are costs. And when you're not generating, you know, enough revenue to... Out- offset those costs, you need help from investors. What a SPAC does is allows them to go to the public and say, look, we are only interested in acquiring some company that's going to help us grow revenue. And if they're doing it in the US and listing in the US, I'm assuming it's some media company that they'd be able to distribute one championship through or some some type of company that makes sense to partner with a media company to distribute one championship to, so they get a bigger broadcast deal. Maybe they do pay-per-views. They've talked about the pay-per-view model for a while now. They say it's still coming because they need to do that. It, it makes a lot of sense to go through a SPAC because they've grown so much in popularity. SPACs have not one. I mean, one has two, but you know, <laughs> uh, SPACs have really grown in popularity in terms of an investment platform, especially this year. Uh, MMA payout, you know, mentions that you're looking at, I believe, nine billion, right? Like, I mean, it's it's nuts how how insane SPACs have become kind of the new thing. Uh, and and it allows them to bypass all that IPO stuff. They don't have to do the disclosures where they have to list out, yeah, here are some of our financial data, are you know, some of our p- subsidiaries and who owns percentages and all 
to do those financial disclosures. They're already doing a fair amount of that already because of the Singapore government rules, but they would have to do even more through an IPO if they were going to list in the US. With the SPAC, they can bypass all that. They don't have to do the roadshows and they can just say, hey, investors, come, you know, come, come throw your money at us. And, and think about it. There are a fair amount of MMA fans that still love one championship and that I could see easily saying, wait, I have a, I have a chance to like be part owner. Yeah, cool. Could easily see that. And you know, exactly how many are out there. Eh, I don't, I'm not sure. I, I don't think it's a massive market, but there are also probably other equity firms that would look at that opportunity and say, okay, I don't know too much about the space, but I know MMA is growing. Might look at something like a UFC deal with Migu Mobile. No one championship as a competitor is based in that region. You know, maybe I'll throw some money at it. it. It really cuts down on the red tape and gives one an ability to attract investors that they probably wouldn't be able to otherwise, or that would take a lot longer to pitch to and all of that otherwise. So that's why they're doing it. I really think the goal, the what they're looking to acquire is something that gives them a better media rights deal in the US than what they're getting right now with TNT, whether that's its own media company of some sort, or that is a company that can help them establish then a good relationship or sponsorship deal or what have you to get a broadcast media rights deal. I think that's the end game still. Because they're still not generating enough revenue on their own. They're still burning through marketing. They want to really expand and reach out to the US. They've said that multiple times. This type of action of going through a SPAC makes me believe that that's really, this, this is a step towards that, towards getting them a better broadcast deal in the US. So we'll see if they actually go through with it. The fact that Credit Suisse and Goldman Sachs is, un Goldman Sachs is underwriting it is a big deal. That means that, that they're serious in, in terms of moving with this. We'll see what happens. But again, what a SPAC is, is basically another fancy name for an IPO with rules around it. One important caveat, though, is that with a SPAC, if after two years an acquisition is not made or you know investors aren't happy about it, money can be refunded to the investors. So you know, if I throw $100 into this SPAC and then once the time elapses and one still hasn't acquired anything that makes sense or it's it's a deal that's not going to go through or what have you, I get my money back. That's that's very enticing for a lot of investment firms that maybe don't want to take on the risk profile of one championship without that type of guarantee, right? I get my money back if you don't acquire the company. It, it helps lower their risk profile for some of these other firms. So that's another big part of this. So we'll see what happens, but we'll, we'll keep an eye on it. But look, at, be on the lookout for that one championships back. I will be, of course, as well. And I'll, I'll let you know if we see it. But big moves, big moves by one to kind of correct course here after the financial earnings we know about 2019. And my guess is 2020 didn't go much better. So let's see if they're they're able to pull it off and get some distribution in the US at a broader range. All right, and since we're talking about one championship, let's go ahead and shift things over to the political side here in terms of Myanmar and everything going on there. So if you haven't heard, Myanmar did have a military coup earlier this year. Military essentially came in, 
overthrew a fairly elected government and took you know capture of the heads of state there and this is significant for one championship for a couple of reasons one uh, myanmar is a massive portion of their audience if you didn't know that already they tune in like no other for one championship it's it's a huge part of one championship's audience and and their growth and where they can say they have all these you know billions of viewers and all this potential billions of viewers a lot of that comes from myanmar and right now myanmar is starting to boycott certain singapore products so that that's important whenever something like this happens nations come out and condemn a coup in this case singapore did condemn what myanmar did you know said the civilian deaths that occurred were inexcusable really came out strongly condemning and saying that this was illegal all of that and when that happens the government that throws the coup right will pick out certain countries and say like nope they're terrible they're awful we're going to boycott their products they're not you know supporting our government here because they have to put out this image that they they are in the right for overthrowing the government that it was the right thing to do and they have to challenge anyone that challenges them and it seems in this case myanmar has, has specifically targeted singapore because of their ties in the international community we won't get into that but they are boycotting singapore products a very big piece of this is ong lan sang who is one of the biggest stars in one championship and is a massive star in myanmar is is really well known in the mma community in myanmar he has called for the immediate release of the officials the elected officials and said that you know the coup is wrong you could end up with this military controlled government myanmar banning one championship which would really cut the legs out from under them in terms of their current audience and you know it it would be a massive blow for the promotion viewership wise i think how much i don't know the exact numbers i can't tell you that but if you look at a particular one championship event and you will see you know all these people flooding in to watch a lot of them come from myanmar that is a huge portion of it there's indonesia as well there's you know there's others sections but myanmar and online saying that that's been a market that one championship has really pushed if you go to one look up on online saying and and you know pieces one has done about him being the shining beacon for myanmar and all this other stuff it, it really hurts them at a time when they're trying to again possibly do this spac to get more money and acquire something to help them you know get a larger foothold in america when we've looked at their finances from 2019 seeing that they're spending all this money in marketing and they really need to up the revenue growth they can't afford to lose any portion of their audience myanmar would be a significant one so what can they do here right you've got one of your biggest stars if not your biggest homegrown star um coming out condemning this coup you know myanmar is boycotting products you have to tread carefully here you can go one or two ways you can come out in full support of of your fighter and say yep nope we back him and we condemn this that's almost certainly going to get you boycotted but you, you take a stand you can try and and push for greater publicity and greater 
audience in other areas and and have that you know be part of your brand and image that no you took a stand for this you can kind of do nothing and just hope that you avoid a boycott you know it's whether or not they'd get boycotted on their own it's hard to say but the fact that you know on long saying is out there saying this he's definitely drawing attention to the promotion but if you're silent you're not necessarily supporting it right you're not saying you can't say it but you can say well that's you know we let our fighters speak their mind that's how he feels but that's not how one championship feels right without actually saying it and that is a key piece because that is your third option is you could come out and say you know we we disagree we we don't get involved in international politics our fighters can say whatever you could go so far as even to reprimand him for saying these things about nope that's not your place to get involved in international politics even though obviously that's very important <laughs> very important country for you uh no you can't do that and and kind of crack down on letting fighters speak about that it's tough i think here being silent is probably the best risk mitigation strategy right you don't want to piss off your biggest star regardless of how you feel as a person or as the people running the company from a business standpoint coming out against myanmar and kind of, you know, poking the hornet's nest, so to speak, and saying, yes, we condemn that coup, doesn't do much for you, right? It, except risk you getting boycotted. You can say that and then go into a different PR route and try and use that in your favor, but especially while they're going through this SPAC thing or trying to go through this SPAC thing and trying to get a broadcast deal, without that in hand, it's risky because that could also turn investors off, Right. There are a lot of VCs, a lot of companies out there that have lots of different dealings going on that you don't know exactly what the ramifications will be as a company if you say one championship is against this coup. You don't know if that will attract sponsors, will you know deflect sponsors, could go either way. And without a broadcast deal in hand, with the amount of money you're burning through right now and their financial situation it's a big risk to do that. So I think that's kind of off the table unless you just want to really go full on, roll the dice, see what's up. Condemning your fighter too isn't a, the greatest look because yes, Myanmar will not boycott you then or shouldn't. If they do, then you're screwed, but most likely would leave you alone. But then you're coming out against one of your biggest stars and saying, nope, we got to crack down. And in your whole image right now, is this one of honor and building a universe of heroes. And it's the, all about people doing the right thing and, and not being the UFC and, and, and the Western style of MMA. That's your whole brand image is this, you know, more traditional, healthier, you know, merit, merit based. And I mind you, this is their brand image. Um, it's, it's all about those values of being heroes it's not very heroic to say, Shh, don't talk about that. You know, <laughs> to one of your best, best and biggest fighters, like, Shh, we, hey, hey, don't talk about it. That's not heroic, man. That's, it's not. So I think the smartest play here is to be silent. I think that's pretty much what they've done here. I, it's what I expect them to do, but they have to keep a close eye on this. If more fighters under their, their contract start to talk about 
Myanmar, they're, they might be forced to make a decision. And then you've really got to think about this because if you lose your audience now, you know, it's, it's not the entire audience, but it is a significant portion. If you lose that now where you're trying to go to a broadcast partner and see, look at how many viewers we have. That that's terrible. I don't think they'll ever go. I don't think they'll ever come out openly against their fighters, but I could see them sending an internal memo or having a meeting behind closed doors and saying, look guys, we need you to please stop doing this and stop talking about this just for now until we get a deal done because we, we can't risk it. I could see things going that far. I don't think it's there yet, but it, it's really a dicey situation for a company that needs that audience right now. So I expect them to be silent. I think that's their safest bet right now. And we'll see what happens. We'll see if more fighters join Anglan saying in terms of saying, no, we've got to speak out about this. This is unacceptable. Or or if stay quiet. If other people stay quiet, if Anglan say doesn't really make any more noise about it, I think this blows over and they might be able to still keep their brand image while still being broadcast in Myanmar. But it, it's going to be tough because this, this is an ongoing evolving situation. It, it has international, you know, <laughs> ramifications and consequences. We'll see how the situation evolves and we'll see what happens here. But one has to be careful. That That's for sure. They're on a very... They're, they're walking a very thin line here. And in order for them to come out ahead, they, they've got to really be careful about what they say and do towards their own fighters and towards the Myanmar government. So interesting times for sure. So the next thing I want to talk about is something that came out earlier this month by Scott Fontana in the New York Post um, talking about UFC's discretionary bonuses. So the UFC clarified, originally it said it was $18 million uh, but the UFC clarified then that total bonus payout for 2020 in discretionary bonuses was $13 million. So that averages out to be $5,044 per fighter per fight. Now, this is discretionary bonuses, again, behind the scenes bonuses where we don't see it on any sort of, you know, salary payout from a state commission. We don't see it in terms of the, you know, Performance bonuses, all that's not like, hey, by the way, this fighter got an extra four grand or whatever. And it is it is something that the UFC has, has positioned as a, we are giving out more money than it appears. And it's true, they are. The fact that they are giving out these discretionary bonuses, which we've known about since the UFC antitrust lawsuit. You know, we want to talk about some of the goofier ones in contracts. There's, you know, the, the, the Rampage Jackson uh, Ford charger and things of that nature. Uh, you, I've done a video about the antitrust lawsuit uh, and articles that breaks that down previously, but this type of, you know, article where the UFC discusses, yes, we give $13 million in 2020 in discretionary bonuses. Fighters are getting paid more is done for a couple of reasons. One, it's to highlight again, the fact that the UFC is paying out more than it appears. So that when people say fighters are being underpaid, well, no, no, we're 13 millions in bonuses is a lot of money for a year, guys. We are giving a lot more money you don't even know about. Don't even worry about it. It lends credence to things when you have Israel Adesanya goes on Dan Hooker's podcast and says like, yeah, people don't know what they're talking about. We get way more money. Everything goes, you know, there's behind the scenes stuff. 
lends credence to that conversation of, yeah, we are kind of in the dark here. We don't have full transparency. So people could argue, yeah, you know what? It's, it's these journalists coming out saying fighters are being underpaid. Nah, that's not true. They just don't understand what the bonus is. We can't see it. Lend some credibility to that argument. And the discretionary bonuses in themselves are a, a kind of brilliant thing for the promotion to do. Because what it allows them to do is have more control over how a fighter is paid, right? They can say, you just put on an amazing, exciting fight. Guess what? Here's an extra 10 grand. Just don't worry about it. Or here's an extra $20,000, $30,000. Don't even sweat it because you put on an amazing fight, man. And that helps drive fighter individuality and, and fighter individual basically met the mentality of I'm, I'm looking out for me, right? I got paid $20,000 that no one's talking about by Dana White. Cause he said my performance was amazing or because I put on a hell of a show and it allows the UFC to kind of reward fighters that they believe will go far in either creating more revenue for the promotion or climbing the ranks to become champions, which they'll then have to market and things of that nature. But really it comes down to, you know, are these fighters exciting? Can we market them well? Do they have a personality we like? And that gives the UFC an ability to reward those fighters more and incentivize fighters to, to go out there and have exciting fights. I doubt Jared Rochalt got many discretionary bonuses, if any, <laughs> right? I, I doubt that some of these fighters that go to the decision and maybe don't put on, you know, highlight reel knockouts and talk trash on the mic, they probably get much lower bonuses, inter discretionary bonuses, compared to, you know, people like Zabit or, you know, Adesanya or the ones that go out there and, and just kill it. Chemaev, of course. That gives the UFC so much power and leverage. And it treats the fighters then that are, again, working as independent contractors, it treats them just as the type of environment you might see in, in a commission-only sales environment for a business, right? Now, I don't know how many of you have done sales or know people in sales or know how that all works, but if you're commission-only, it, it's competition, right? And sales in general is a lot about competition, about Salespeople are all about getting the, the big sale, get, you know, being the best salesman, getting those bonuses because you're the best salesman. It's kind of like that. It's kind of like, yeah, if I put on the best fight, I'm going to get a big bonus. I just got a massive bonus from Dana. And yeah, oh, you know, I, I'm going up against these guys that are up and comers and that, you know, may take my spot or may get a, a sp spot on a good card that I want to be on a Conor McGregor card. I've got to fight for my spot. I've got to fight to get that bonus. It creates that same type of mentality you see in sales where people are working together and they're friendly, you know, well, in terms of the fight game, not always obviously, but you know, they, they know each other. They're, they're fighters. They acknowledge each other, but they're competing with one. It really is not the type of, environment you would have for say forming a union or forming you know some type of collective bargaining because it's not about hey we're all in this together let's all get paid it's about man i'm trying to get the biggest bonus of the night and i'm not talking about yes 
you got the performance of the night bonus and fight of the night and all that. But I'm also talking about just getting one of the discretionary bonuses. Like, okay, I didn't get performance of the night, I didn't get fight of the night, but I'm sure as hell is impressive. I'm going to go out there and impress Dana and, you know, Mick Maynard and Sean Shelby and get some 10,000 grand under the table. Sorry, not under the table. It's legal, but some 10,000 grand behind closed doors in the locker room. It helps create this competitive environment. And that gives the UFC even more leverage because it helps have the fighters be more individualistic and really focus more on their own. But then it really allows them to say where even more of their salary is going because they can say, yeah, I know I brought you in on a 20,000 to show 20,000 to win deal. But if you impress me, I'll give you $20,000. It doesn't matter if you lose. If you put on a hell of a fight, I'll give you another $20,000 right there. And you've got somebody who was fighting on the, the regional or, you know, one of the feeder leagues making nowhere near that type of money, you know, paying for training camps, really taking this stuff seriously to get to the highest levels. And now you dangle in front of them another carrot of like, man, that, that'd be huge in terms of just helping me get to the point where I don't need a full-time job while I'm training. And really, it, it's brilliant by the UFC to do this because it, it gives them so much more leverage over the fighters than they realize. Because in the fighter's mind, yeah, bonus, awesome. It's more money than I, I signed the contract for 24-24 for show and win, but I might actually end up getting you know, 60 or 70 even if I don't get one of the performance of the night or fight of the night bonuses, awesome. That's how they end up thinking about it. Rather than, hey, wait a minute, maybe I should be paid, you know, let's say you're going to give me a $15,000 or 20, you're going to give me a $20,000 bonus. Well, why isn't, why am I not getting that in my show and win money? Why isn't my, my show money 30 grand and win money 30 grand in that case? You know, I'm an exciting fighter. You, you know, my worth, you, you signed me. Why am I not getting that? It, it really, it helps the UFC get fighters and incentivize fighters to put on the fights they want. It allows them to pick and choose their favorites in terms of who gets what bonus. And it helps keep fighters in the mindset of, oh, I'm getting more than I originally signed for, which that's a huge part of it. Psychology, I will, I will preach this until the day I die. If you give your workers a certain level of comfort, they will adapt to it, even if it's amazing, and they will always end up wanting more after so much period of time because they want to keep rising. It's all about levels and climbing the ladder, right? That's really what it's about. That's that's so much of, of business and it's just part of human nature. You want to always be growing, always be raising up the ladder. And in a competitive sport like MMA, having those bonuses like that is just another, another carrot and another step for someone to climb. And that's how they're going to see it. It's just like sales. It's so much like sales. It's not even... If anybody that works in sales, you know what I'm talking about in terms of like, oh, if you hit this certain quota, like, yes, we're going to pay you this on commission, but guess what? If you, if you're the top sales guy, or if you hit this certain quota by the end of the month, we're going to give you a bonus and salespeople eat that up. That's their whole thing is they're always trying to get that deal. They're always trying to get that bonus. It's same thing for MMA fighters here. And that's what discretionary bonuses are all about. They're all about more leverage the promotion can have and building that kind of hunger so that the promotion can get fighters to compete against each other for those bonuses all while 
you know, handing out money as they see fit and really saving themselves money in the long term. It's a brilliant business strategy. Morally, yeah, we're not going down that path because this is the Fight Business Podcast. And yes, morally, there are, are many ways you could dissect this. But from a business standpoint, it's perfect. It, it, it really helps really helps facilitate the model that the UFC has used to grow to a $4 billion company when they sold to Endeavor and now to a potentially $7 billion valuation because it, it, it's just, it's brilliant. It, it really takes care of, <laughs> really takes care of fighters all coming together and working together and saying, Hey, we need a union. Hey, we need more money because it, it allows them to, you know, pick and choose who they give money to. That that kind of leverage and that type of structure is something you can't buy. So, again, hats off to the UFC there, and that's really what the UFC discretionary bonuses are all about. All right, real quickly here, guys, I want to talk about Invicta FC no longer being on UFC Fight Pass. So it is a little bit of a shock, but you know, Shuto and and Pancras are also going from UFC Fight Pass as well, right? I think part of the reason that this happened is the way the UFC Fight Pass distribution deals work, at least from what I know on certain promotions. I know LFA, Ed Soros has talked to us about this in um, specific interviews. If you go back and look at the earlier Fight Pass business podcast I did with him, he discusses this. Really, it's they they distribute it, they put it on Fight Pass, but it's up to the promotion to do most of the production, right? That was a huge thing that Ed talked about for LFA, where when they were with Access TV, Access would do a lot of the production, would you know handle all of that, and then they would really handle just setting up the fights, doing all that. When they switched to UFC Fight Pass, they now had to run all of the produ production aspects of a show. So that includes, you know, writing things on, on the entrances for fighters coming out, uh, graphics, cameras, all that stuff. Now that burden shifted to them. My guess is that's probably true for most of the promotions that are working with Fight Pass. I'm assuming that's kind of just the deal. It's yes, we give you money and, and broadcast rights so we can, you know, show you on UFC Fight Pass, but you still have to produce everything. You've got to put on the cards, run all of that. That's a major burden on a promotion, especially, you know, one of the smaller promotions like LFA or Invicta. That's that's a major boat. <laughs> that's a major burden on Invicta. And, and I'm sure it incurs a fair amount of cost. I don't know the specifics of why in, Invicta and UFC Fight Pass really split split. But if if you are Invicta and you think you can get a better broadcast deal where somebody else will kind of, you know, front those production costs for you, or you can do kind of the pay-per-view routes that they've done before of like $10 or so, and they can get enough interest in generating there. It makes sense because it, I'm sure costs were higher under the UFC fight pass agreement for Invicta than other broadcast deals. I'm, I'm nearly positive that that was the case. So I, don't know that we'll see more people leave, but that's kind of what's going on there, I think, is, you know, they probably looked it over, Shannon Knapp and, and others, executives there probably looked it over and said, look, we might be able to get a better deal here or we can make more money, keep our costs lower if we get somebody to, you know, produce the show for us as well. And, or we'll go to pay-per-view. We think there's enough 
you know, interest here. We can go the pay-per-view route, what have you. I think all of that comes into play in this decision. Wouldn't be surprised if you see more companies kind of shuffle away from UFC fight pass, especially if there's metrics they're seeing that we don't know about where it's not really worth that production cost. So for whatever reason, I think that's really, they looked it over at Invicta and they weren't getting enough bang for their buck there. So they're looking for something else. It happens, happens all the time. It's, it's media rights deals, man. I mean, UFC went to Fox. Now they're on ESPN. It, it's, it's a common thing. So don't know if we'll see anybody else leave, but that's just what's going on with the whole Invicta leaving UFC Fight Pass. Big deal considering it was one of their biggest signings when Fight Pass, you know, started back in 2014 and all that. So, all right, guys, and that wraps up another episode of the Fight Business Podcast. Thank you for bearing with me on this one. Again, appreciate you guys listening on Anchor, Spotify, Apple TV, all of that. If you're watching on YouTube, please give this video a like. Hit a subscribe button if you haven't done that. Hit the notification bell if you haven't done that as well. Next week, we will be back at our regularly scheduled time. Just one episode next week, um, unless there's any breaking news in the UFC antitrust lawsuit case, because I will get that out ASAP. But I've been checking that. No, no movement there. Uh, don't know if you can hear or not, but my voice is starting to go a little bit. So I'm going to go ahead and get some rest. Appreciate all you guys. And until I see you guys next time, get money.